As Rob said, my name is John, uh, while well, I'm getting stationed here. Um, so this is the third and final week of our look through the book of Nehemiah and how it um, parallels with our desire to plant a new church right here in Bothell and Mill Creek. Uh, so I just want to say thank you, um, first of all, for just being my friend. I really appreciate the friendships here. Thanks for listening, uh, for considering, for praying. Uh, all these things are just uh, such a blessing. So. Uh, Along those lines, if you go to the next slide, just a reminder, if you want to have a little bit more um, specificity with how you pray for Northwind, uh, you can go to the inview.org slash Northwind, sign up to receive a, a couple emails each month that tell uh, some, very, some very specific and practical things you can be praying for us. And if you want to learn more about the church plant, we've got a link there to a video uh, with some information. You can watch that. It's about 45 minutes long. And then if you want to do any further follow-up conversation with me, that's another great way you can sign up for all that stuff uh, at that website. Um, and as Rob mentioned too, we are doing the Lord's Supper today. I know I'm not wearing the tie, so that might throw you off a little bit, but we are going to do it. We'll do it at the end of the message. Yeah, you're not wearing a tie either. Not, not, oh, you're not doing communion. There you go. All right, so let me set the stage for you. We're going to go back to the year 1964. And specifically, we're going to be in Tokyo, Japan. And we're going to be watching the Olympic Games, the Summer Games. Uh, and specifically, we're in the stands at the track and field venue. Now, you know, imagine, if you will, it's just rained a ton. I know it's hard to imagine here, right, that it rained a lot. Uh, and there's a cinder track. It's not our modern fancy tracks. It's a cinder track. So when it rains, the track just becomes heavy and soft and uneven, really bad conditions to try to run a race on, much less an Olympic final. And we're sitting in the stands, and the, t and the men's 10,000-meter race is about to start, the Olympic final. That's six and a quarter miles, uh, and that's 25 laps around the track. I know this race well. I used to run it when I was in college. And I can tell you that even on the best of conditions, that is a grueling race. That's a long time to run around in a circle, much less on a rain-soaked track. So here we are, a men's Olympic 10,000-meter, 1964 Tokyo, and there's an American in the field, and his name is Billy Mills. Now, Billy Mills is a very good runner. Um, obviously, he's a good runner. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be in the Olympic finals. But he's not really good enough to be in contention for a medal. He's just expected to finish you know, wherever in the pack. But something surprising happens once the race starts. And, and when the race starts, they get going. And there's Billy right in, in the front of the pack with all the leaders. And not just for a lap or two, he's actually with the lead pack for the whole first half of the race, so 5,000 meters. In fact, they come across the halfway point in that race just one second slower than his personal best time for that distance. So he's just run three miles, actually a little over three miles, just about as fast as he's ever run it before, and now he has another three miles and a little more that he's got to run. And again, he's in the lead of this part of the race, and, and later on he, he was quoted as saying, well, I decided that I would lead a lap because at least then I would know that I've led a lap in the Olympics, even if I couldn't finish. At least I'd had that experience. But the thing is, Billy Mills does finish. He continues to run and fight over the next few miles. And remember, he's, he's just this kid from small town Kansas, and, and here he is running neck and neck with the world record holder in the event. So he keeps running. They're running 23, 24 laps. They're coming around the last turn of the last lap. And so bear in mind at this point, Billy Mills has just run about six miles 
about a minute faster than he's ever run it in his life before. And if you know, a minute in that kind of race is a big deal. And he's in third place, and he's losing ground. And so one of the guys in front of him is, again, is the world record holder. So third place, losing ground uh, to one of the best runners in the world, 100 meters to go. He reaches deep inside, and he begins his final all-out sprint with everything he has left. And with 50 meters to go, halfway down the, the, the final stretch, he passes the lead, he just flies by the leaders, and he's just cruising towards the finish line. I'll tell you what, if you go up back and watch the, the footage, the announcers are going nuts. I love it. The announcers are like, look at Mills, look at Mills, ah! I mean, I'm not exaggerating. That's literally how he, how he sounded. And so he flies to the finish line. He sets a new Olympic record, and his victory in that race is still considered to this day one of the greatest Olympic moments uh, in all of history. And... As a former competitive runner myself, I, I, I love that story, man. It just makes me smile. It gives me goosebumps just to think about it. Um, you know, he's from Kansas. I'm from Kansas, so we got that connection. Also, it's just really fun. I even got the chance to meet Billy Mills very briefly. I was at a track beat in college, and I got to shake his hand, get his autograph. Still have it. It's a pretty cool thing. Um, he did a lot of really cool things, too, at, at later on in his life. I encourage you to check him out. But if we think about Billy Mills in that race, why did he win that race? Well, he won that race because he took a risk. He stepped out in faith that he could hang with and even beat the best in the world. And he had to run this really aggressive race on a really bad track. And he ran knowing that, you know, I might not even be able to finish this race. But then again, he thought, maybe I can finish this race. And so despite having no business at all, at least on paper, competing in the front in that race. He ended up beating everyone in the field, including, like I said, the world record holder at the time. And actually, to date, did you know, he's the only American athlete, male or female, to win an Olympic gold at the 10,000 meters. So it's quite the legacy that he has. So let me ask you, that's, that's Billy's story. Uh, what about our stories? Have you ever had a time when God took you out of your comfort zone and, and had you take a step of faith? And if so, what were the results of that? And my guess is that if we took a microphone and kind of like went around the audience, we would hear all kinds of stories about how God worked in your life and how you had to take a step of faith. Because that's kind of how God grows us, isn't it? That's how we grow in our faith. We grow when we're stretched. Um, When God takes us out of those comfortable areas in our life and we have to go forward in faith. Well, today I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my own faith journey and kind of where God has brought me in the past several years. But we're also going to look uh, at Nehemiah and see that he was in a similar situation. And in fact, Nehemiah had to take an incredibly bold step of faith to meet the need of his fellow Jews back in Jerusalem. Okay, so we've talked at length over the last several weeks about how Nehemiah's heart was broken over the state of Jerusalem. And so you remember uh, he was devastated by the news that the city walls were in shambles. Uh, He was filled with sorrow over the sins of his people, including his own. And we've looked at how he responded to this need, starting with prayer. And then last week, we dug into the first half of Nehemiah's prayer. And we learned that at the heart of his prayer was his prayer for confession and repentance. And so we saw from Nehemiah's example that, that prayer and confession and repentance were these foundational aspects of any spiritual endeavor. 
but a foundation exists so that you can build on it. That's what a foundation is for. So likewise, Nehemiah continues his prayer in the second half of it, and it becomes this prayer for action. So he's looked at the situation, he's prayed over it, he's confessed, he's repented both his sins and the sins of the nation, of Israel. And he's, as a result, he's become convinced that he needs to act. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Nehemiah's prayer. Uh, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. it will be on, it's on the screen as well. And we'll start in verse 11. And Nehemiah prays, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And it was in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. When wine was before him and I took up the wine, I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And then the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much, very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Okay, so here is where we see Nehemiah's call to action, as it were. At the very end of his prayer in 111, he says, God, grant your, service, your servant success today and show compassion to me because of the presence of this, or in the presence of this man. And then he gives us a very important detail. He says, I was the cupbearer for the king. Oh, okay, so now this brings a little bit of clarity to the story that we didn't have until now. Up to this point, we really don't know who Nehemiah is, other than that he's a Jewish person. He's living in exile in Babylon. And we've seen his reaction to hearing about Jerusalem. But now we learn, oh, he's actually in a place where he can do something about it. We learn that Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. And as a royal cupbearer, he would have been a man of great influence. Um, he would have been among the people who had closest access to the king. He might have even been the person who determined who got to see the king at all. But given his role, Nehemiah was someone who enjoyed the, uh, the confidence of the king. So if there's really any person in the world at that time who was in a position to rebuild Jerusalem, it was probably Nehemiah. So let's think for a minute about where Nehemiah is right now, not uh, kind of what he, what's run through his mind. So, okay, yeah, he was a Jew, he was living in the exile, and no doubt he wanted to return to Israel like every other Jew living in exile. But practically speaking, my guess is he had probably given really no thought to ever leaving his job as, as cupbearer. Um, he probably excelled at his job. If he didn't excel, he wouldn't be the cupbearer anymore. He... Uh, probably had great benefits, uh, he, and he really didn't have any reason to do anything that might jeopardize his career or his status. But then he hears about Jerusalem and what's going on over there. And he prays about it, and he, he starts confessing and repenting, and God begins to work through his heart throughout this time. And he starts to realize that God had placed him in this unique position 
and was calling him to do something about it. But answering this call was a process that took time. Right? Nehemiah didn't just hear a word from God and then like, start to work the next day. That's not, that's not how it worked. He approached his calling slowly and deliberately. So in chapter 1, we see that Hanani comes to Nehemiah in the month of Kislev. But now here in chapter 2, when Nehemiah is back attending the king, we see it's the month of Nisan. Okay, so we don't really know what those months mean, but in the uh, you know, English-American calendar, basically that's from November to March. So Nehemiah spent about four months praying and waiting before the time was right to act. And I think it was critical for Nehemiah to wait and pray for those four months uh, because of the risk that was involved with what he was trying to do. He's going to ask the king to rebuild Jerusalem. Um, now the story doesn't tell us when Nehemiah was planning to bring this up. Uh, it does tell us that the king noticed that, that Nehemiah was depressed. He says, now before this, you know, I, I hadn't been sad in the king's presence. So was this the first time Nehemiah had seen the king in four months? Did he have a sabbatical or something? Um, or was it the first time that he couldn't keep, his, keep himself composed while he was on the job? Uh, we really don't know. But we do know that this was the inn that Nehemiah needed. And so when the king asks him about his sadness, he replies, Well, uh, why wouldn't I be sad when the city with the graves of my ancestors lies desolate and its gates are destroyed by fire? Right? He's saying, of course I'm sad. My, the, the home of my ancestors is in ruins. Like, that's, you know, why, yeah, I'm sad. And the king responds to him and basically says, Okay, well, what do you want me to do about it? So Nehemiah offers up this one last quick prayer and, and asks the king to send him to rebuild Jerusalem. But I want to focus for just a second on a, on a short little sentence that's right in the middle of this dialogue. So in verse 2 of chapter 2, the king asks him why he looks sad, and then Nehemiah relates this little tidbit. He says, this made me very fearful. Well, why would that be? Well, first, it would have been very poor form for the cupbearer to be anything less than upbeat and happy in the presence of the king. And given the fact that the king held the power, literally held the power of life and death in his hands, probably not a good idea to break a lot of rules when you're the cupbearer. But secondly, and I think more importantly, um, the king in question here is Artaxerxes. Now, this is the same Artaxerxes that actually has already issued a decree to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that's found in Ezra chapter 4. Now, this would have been several years before Nehemiah, uh, when the people surrounding Jerusalem, they sent a letter to Artaxerxes and they said, hey, those people in Jerusalem, um, they're only rebuilding so they can rebel against you. What are you going to do about it? Like, you should really make them stop. And so Artaxerxes had put those rebuilding plans to stop. And so now Nehemiah is going to the same guy and asking him to reverse his decision. So like, this is a pretty stressful situation here. But Nehemiah didn't let that fear stop him from obeying God. So Nehemiah took bold action. Um, and if you think about it from Nehemiah's perspective, it would have been a lot easier, it would have been a lot more comfortable to just kind of say nothing, right? He could have kept his good job. He could have kept his network of friends and family. Uh, he could have very well continued to enjoy God's blessing in his life right there in, in the capital. But he didn't. He was willing to risk everything to rebuild Jerusalem. I mean, he was willing to go and ask the most powerful person in the world, who happened to be his boss, 
to change his mind and, and allow him to rebuild the city. And he was willing to go to that city, a new place with a new group of people, and he was willing to take a bold risk because he loved Jerusalem and he loved his fellow Israelites and he loved God. And so when I look out at our community, I, I see the pressing need, and it's the need I've talked about the past two weeks. Um, there's a serious shortage of churches here. We just don't have enough churches. And there's many thousands of people right here who just who need to hear the gospel, quite frankly. And we've talked about how this is fundamentally a spiritual problem, and it's a, it needs a spiritual solution. So that means that foundation of prayer and confession and repentance. So again, for those of you who are praying with me and join with me in that, Oh, thank you so much. That is a great foundation. I do believe God will use that to build upon. But as we see in, in the case of Nehemiah, prayer and confession and repentance ultimately leads to action. And if you continue reading Nehemiah, you'll see that he gets the approval of the king. He takes a group of people with him to Jerusalem, and he starts rebuilding the wall. And so they left what was comfortable, comfortable, yeah, comfortable for them, try to say that, to do what was commendable, by God. And this is really the crux of the call, and this is where um, I think some of my story and Nehemiah's story connect, and it's, it's why I chose to speak on Nehemiah uh, to begin with, because of these parallels that I saw uh, with my own journey. And so I just want to take a couple minutes, I want to kind of tell you a little bit about my story, um, why I'm up here, why I'm passionate about this, and what I'm trying to do, um, and why I'm trying to do it. So I'm going to go into storytelling mode here, we're going to just kind of be friends for a minute, okay? Oh, that's much more comfortable. All right. So for those of you who don't know my background, let me share a little bit uh, with you. So I grew up in a Christian home. I've been a follower of Jesus as long as I can remember. Um, and when I was 15, God placed the call of ministry on my life. Uh, now, if you went to, or if you, if you go watch the informational meeting, um, you, can, you can hear the story in great detail. But uh, the bottom line is, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I, I can only have what I describe as like an audible call to ministry. Um, and this ended up shaping the trajectory of my life. So I ended up uh, submitting to that call, and I went to college, I got a degree in Christian ministry. After that, I went to Denver Seminary, I got a master's degree in biblical studies. Uh, so at that point, I'm a, I'm a young man, I'm all studied up, I'm ready to become a pastor, I got the education, I've got the call, I'm like, all right, God, ready to do this. And that's not what happened, at all. Uh, I did not get a ministry position, nothing came up, um, I had to do something else. So instead, I spent the next 15 years uh, working in the corporate world and being involved as a lay leader in the church. So I was on leadership teams, I, I led small groups, taught Bible studies, you name it, I did it. And that's how I was involved. And there was a lot of time in there where I, where I really doubted th this call to ministry. You know, like, what's God doing? I even asked God to take it back a couple of times on different occasions. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want this anymore. Like, can you just have it back? Uh, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me give it back to him. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had that feeling that, that God, you know, put a call in your life or made you to do something, and then you're stuck over here doing something else. If you ever had that feeling, that's me. That's my feeling on a daily basis. That's my that's my life. That's how I feel all the time, uh, except when I'm preaching or teaching or or um, you know listening to someone or or sharing with someone. That's when I feel alive. That's when I feel like, hey, I'm really doing what God made me to do. Um, that's when I'm in my wheelhouse. So I have this call to ministry, 15 years, and, and not much has happened. But then several years ago, 
God started putting this idea of planting a church in my head. Um, and it sounded a little crazy at first, not going to lie. Uh, because, you know, I had a career at that point. I, I, I probably wasn't as high up on the ladder as Nehemiah. I wasn't cut bare to the king, but, you know, um, I did have a good job. I had a career. I, uh, at that point in time, um, I was reporting out on my work directly to vice presidents every single day at Boeing. Uh, you know, if I found an issue or a problem as an auditor, I made a phone call and it went away. Like, that was, that was where I was at. So what does that mean? Well, that means that if I wanted to climb the corporate ladder, like that was really the way to do it, right? I, I knew all the people, I had all the connections. I could, have, uh, I could have risen up the corporate ladder, you know, made a lot of money, had a nice, nice house, retired, and just, you know, that could have been my life. And uh, I was really right in the middle of the American dream, right? That's what we all long for. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I know a lot of godly people who, whose lives took them in that direction, and that's amazing. Um, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. That, that call in ministry was still there and was still in my heart. And so God was pulling me in this direction of church planning. Um, and right about the same time that he put this idea of church planning in my head, he also started working in my heart on, on some other things. I remember um, I had a conversation with a retired pastor at this time. And this pastor was talking about a book he had just read called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Deaver. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it. Um, and he just basically said, yeah, this is a pretty good read for me, so you should really check it out. Okay, so I, I started reading it, and the Spirit just used this book to break my heart and to, and to open up my eyes to the fact that there's people lost and dying and going, and going to spend an eternity apart from God, you know, right here in my own neighborhood. And here's me, I'm educated, I have gifts and abilities, and I wasn't really doing anything about it. And so God has been shaping my heart since that, that time to really help me see people in the light of eternity. And, and you know, that's a journey I'm still on. Um, and, and finally, God has also given Jessica and me a, a love for this community. So neither of us grew up here, right? I'm from Kansas. My wife's from Nebraska. Uh, we're good mid Midwestern folk. Um, some of us, in the, yes, there's a lot of us here uh, spread about in the audience. But something funny happened the day that, uh, that we moved to Seattle from Denver. So I still remember it. It was um, Good Friday in April of 2012. And it was one of those beautiful spring days, like what we just got, you know, like a week and a half ago. Beautiful, you know, 75 and sunny. Uh, we, we, we fly from Denver, we uh, land in SeaTac. I step off the plane um, into the airport and I just had this feeling in my body, like my whole body that said, this is home. And I've never had that feeling living anywhere else, but I have it here, right? Anytime that uh, we leave, anytime we go on vacation, anytime I drive somewhere, uh, I just, I wanna come back. Like, I have that longing. Like, this is my home. Um, I love the community here. I love, I love the nature around us. I love the people. I love everything about it. Like, this is, you know, this is it. Plant the flag, here I am. And so, like Nehemiah, I just have this, I, I feel compelled to act, right? So God has, has reawakened and revived the sense of calling in my life. Um, he's softened my heart over the people here. And he's just, he's given me a love for this community. And so you say, well, John, why are you pursuing this church plant? And, and the answer is because I can't not pursue it. You know, I, just, I love God, I love people, and, and it compels me to, to try to make a difference. So compelled to act. The next bullet up there is waiting and praying. Um, okay, if there's one thing on this earth that I am good at, it's waiting, all right? 
I have been waiting uh, 25 years since God called me to the ministry. So he called me when I'm 15. I'm turning 40 this year. The last 25 years. Uh, let me tell you what. If uh, waiting that long is not easy for a, a whole host of reasons, um, and my wife can tell you that there have been times when I really, really, really wanted to give up. Um, discouragement and doubt are pretty much my my faithful traveling companions this, at this point. It's just a constant thing. Uh, but God, by His grace, has seen me through, and I can say honestly and literally. 100% the truth, the only reason I'm sitting here right now talking to you is because God's grace is at work in my life, and he's given me the strength. That's it. Otherwise, I would have thrown in the towel. And that's not a hyperbole. That's the honest-to-God truth. But in spite of all the struggle, the Spirit is, is working, and, and I just keep moving forward a day at a time. Um, so a lot of waiting in my life. We've also been waiting and praying for this church plant for several years now, so this isn't like a flash-in-the-pan type thing. Uh, Steve and I started meeting in, uh, what, 2018, 2019? I was trying to think of the day, I can't remember. But it's been uh, you know, several years where we've been uh, thinking and praying and, and reading and, and discussing this idea of a church plant. And the whole time that we have been doing this, the whole uh, tenor of the conversation is always, okay, God, is this the real deal? Do we move forward? Do we not move forward? That's still the tenor of the conversation. Um, and, and time after time, I believe God has been saying, yes, keep going. So I've become convinced that God is at work, and he's had several years to convince me otherwise. So waiting and praying, uh, boy, that has been the name of the game for us. Uh, let's talk about that last bullet point, stepping out in faith. So God placed Nehemiah in a role where he could address this issue that God put on his heart, but he had to step out, step out in faith to do it. And this is, uh, this is where we're at, right? We're at the stepping out in faith point. Um, the need is there, but what will the response be? And it's kind of funny because stepping out in faith, uh, as we mentioned uh, with Billy Mills, right? You have to get out of your comfort zone to, to do that. Uh, well, have you ever had God give you a little push to help get you out of your comfort zone? Yeah? Okay, not just me? Okay, good. Well, I did. Uh, so, in Jan... This is... This is a crazy story. In January of this year, um, I was driving into work, and, and when I drove into work, uh, I would pray. It was about 35 minutes. It was perfect. No one could bother me. It was like one stretch of time where I could pray, so that's what I would do. So I was praying, driving into work, um, like I always did, and I, was, I remember I was frustrated because I would, I would commute to work. I'd work hard all day. I mean, from the time I got there to the time I left, I was busy. Uh, I would commute home. And then at that point in the, in the day, I'm just exhausted, right? I'm run down, I'm beat, like nothing's in the tank. And I just didn't have time or energy to work on or even think about church planning. And I'm going, okay, God, like, I cannot do this. Like, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy. Like, there's a bandwidth issue, right? I, I, something's got to give, and I don't know what it is. I, like, I don't know what to do. And so he very clearly, I remember this, God very clearly told me, I am going to open up your time. Okay, this is one of those things where you know, right? It's not just like some kind of like fuzzy thing. It's very direct. <laughs> I'm going to open up your time. Uh, okay, got it, God. Um, so I kid you not, this is a true story. <laughs> Three days later, it's Friday afternoon. I'm, I'm at work, and I get pulled into the conference room. I walk in there with the owner, and there's HR. She's got the manila envelope in front of her, and I got laid off. And I remember I, was, I sat there and I was stunned, um, not because I got laid off, but because three days ago, God said, I'm going to open up your time. And I'm going, okay, God, I guess you're going to open up my time. <laughs> you know, 
That's, uh, boy, I tell you what, that is a surreal moment, um, if you've ever experienced something like that. But I think it was necessary because I, I think I needed to be out of that career um, for a number of reasons, but I wouldn't have quit on my own. Uh, one thing that my wife can attest to is I'm, I'm really bad at quitting. I, don't, I really don't like to do it. But I needed to get out of that. I wasn't going to do it. So God kind of gave me that push, right? He said, I'm going to clear your schedule for what's to come. Um, so I don't know exactly what that looks like on the employment front. I'm still looking and searching and seeking that out. But I do know that this has moved me into a position to act. So now I have this position where I can step out in faith because, let's face it, what have I got to lose? I don't, I don't have a job. Like, there's really nothing left, right? I've got the education and the skills, and, and now I have the time and the energy to take the step of faith and, and see where this church plant might go. So with all that, though, um, I need help, okay? I, I can't do it on my own. Uh, if we're going to plant a church, it's going to have to be a team effort. Um, if you don't know, this is a very tough environment to plant a church in uh, where we live. And so if we do this, we have to do this in a sustainable way, and we have to do this in a way that um, is durable and in a way that promotes long-term faithfulness and, and fruitfulness. And that requires a team of people to make that happen. So we need a team of people to plant seeds and to, to disciple one another and to work in concert with the Spirit to grow uh, a healthy church that can impact our community. Um, and so I need help. So you can see what we need on the slide. Um, in order to be viable, we need 50 people by the end of 2021. So that's the goal, right? That's the go, no go. That's the gate. Uh, that's the absolute minimum we need to have moving forward. Now, I believe that when God brings us those 50 people, uh, he's going to bring us a diverse group of people. So the people I'm looking for are people with diverse gifting and passions and skills and abilities and life experiences, um, but who are all united in their willingness to, to step out of their comfort zone for the sake of the gospel. So the beauty here is, in looking for a diverse group of people, if you have a gift or a skill or a life experience, then you're qualified. You can be on the team. I would love to have you. Uh, so there's no, you know, we're looking for all kinds of people. Um, that's how the kingdom works, right? All kinds of people. And we're looking for people who are willing to maybe sacrifice a little bit um, for the gospel. And there, there will be a sacrifice if you join this. Um, just, you know, I just want to be upfront about that. You might have to leave your small group um, you might have to worship in a new location. You might have to volunteer a little more or step up, up in, a, uh, in a leadership role. Um, but I believe that the sacrifice is worth it when you start to see these new relationships form and when new leaders come forward and grow and when new people come to know Jesus. That's really what it's all about, right? Uh, so here's the ask. So the last three weeks uh, I've been preaching. And again, thank you so much for, for being willing to listen and, and pray and consider uh, so, so what's the ask? The ask is simple uh, and direct, and it's the same ask that I would uh, ask you face-to-face -face as uh, up here, and, and that is, will you seriously pray and consider if God would have you to join this church plant? And then the follow-up to that is, will you do what he says? Um, and he might tell you no, and if he tells you no, hey, that's okay. We can still be friends. Uh, totally fine. But if he says yes, um, will you be willing to go? Will you be willing to submit yourself and say, yes, Lord, I will do that? 
And as we start to move into the Lord's Supper, I think about the fact that, that this, this whole idea of planting churches and, and reaching people, it's really we're talking about the kingdom of God, right? That's what it is. So when Jesus sat down at his last Passover supper before his death and resurrection, if you think about it, he was breaking bread with 11 church planters. Just, after, just 40 days after he ate this last meal with his disciples, he would send his spirit to them, uh, and they would usher in a new era in history, and they did it all by planting churches. So God's vision is to reach people. Remember, what was Jesus' last command on this earth after he resurrected and as he ascended into heaven? He said, go and make disciples. And that's what church planning is all about. So it's all a part of the vision. It's all a part of this grand plan of salvation that sent our Lord Jesus to the cross. And so when we partake in the Lord's Supper, right, we're commemorating, we're remembering that event. So the Gospel of Matthew tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, for this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus broke his body and he poured out his blood for us so that we might be saved. And so the question today is we uh, remember Nehemiah and we remember Jesus and the Lord's Supper. We, is will we take a step of faith and will we share his message of salvation with those who desperately need it? So would you pray with me? God, we, we seek you right now. We remember the sacrifice that you made for us so that we might come to the Father through you. And we know that you told us uh, after your resurrection to go and make disciples. And God, that's what we're trying to do here is go and make disciples. So God, we would just beseech you in the, in the power of your spirit uh, and, and in the power of your name. Raise up laborers to send into the field, Lord. Uh, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So we ask this in your name. Amen.